Thank you. I'm Joe. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Joe. 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 I do my best to turn this over to God um, so that I try and get myself out of the way as best I can. So I, I did my best to do that before this, before I came into the building. And um, it's kind of a nice thing because then it sort of puts it on him and not me. So anything that comes out of me now is I can't, I can't own, sorry. <laughs> uh, it's nice to be here tonight sober. Um, I like to share a little bit about what, what it, I was like and then uh, get into the what happened and what it's like now. First, I'd, if I'd have known this many people was going to show up, Mike, I probably would have turned you down. <laughs> but we'll have a conversation anyway. Um, I was raised in a Catholic home back east in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And um, the reason I bring that up is just because it's, it's, it's what it's about. It, it really set the tone, I think, for my drinking and uh, anything else I did uh, as it was pretty well the way of life uh, it was real uh, accepted and um, I come from a family of five it's really not a whole lot to be said there I guess other than than just that that um, the thing I like to impress and and I don't I don't say that for any reason other than it's just a fact but I um and if I jump around, trust me, you're going to have to hang on because it's a little ADD and all kinds of stuff going on, and it, it definitely gets bounced around. But um, when I finally did find a God that I could understand, it wasn't in that church. And, uh, and I know that that probably works for a lot of people. It just didn't happen to work for me. In fact, it, um, as far back as I can remember, my attitude towards going to that establishment was they always made me get dressed up and for the life of me then and for the life of me now I couldn't figure that out thank god I don't have to try now but I, I remember they they get me all dressed up and this and that and shuffle us out the door and I used to just sit there and think what in the hell is this why wait what does god care what I wear to go to church it just did not make any sense and I'll tell you looking back and understanding where I'm at today, I believe he was doing then for me what I couldn't do for myself. Was I hear people talk about other people that went to that church or was raised that way about all this guilt trip and everything. I don't know where that's coming from because I didn't get any of that. I just didn't get it at all. And I think that um, I was just unplugged from it. It's just how it worked. It's just how it didn't work for me. So this whole thing I hear about the guilt trips and all that stuff is I just never didn't work didn't didn't compute anyway um i think honestly i was self-centered self-will run riot from the very beginning i was pretty much a, a stubborn person and uh i learned at a very early age how to manipulate people um i pretty much got my way just about all the time uh, all the way through my adolescent years, you know, I had a few things going on there. The first time, I like to share this because it, it took a while for me to realize this, but one, I don't know, it was probably four or five years ago, maybe six or eight, I can't remember, but I was thinking one day about alcohol, and my first recollection of alcohol and how it affected me, I believe that 
What makes me alcoholic besides the physical reaction was certainly the mental obsession and um, obviously the spiritual malady since I didn't connect with that early on. Um, but I remember being at a wedding one time, a Catholic wedding back in Minnesota. I had a lot of cousins back there. And these weddings would get big, real big. And um, I had this uncle. He was actually a cousin, but I called him Uncle Roddy. And I remember being at the reception at this dance hall place. Um, and he was going to the bar and bringing me drinks. And I'm sure there wasn't any alcohol in it. But the point I'm making was I remember my parents and some of the other adults, I don't know what the hell, I was probably maybe six or seven years old, maybe seven or so years old. And I remember seeing their reaction to him bringing me something from the bar. And it was freaking them out. And you know, I picked up on that. And exactly, thumbs up because I thought, well, shit, this is really cool. Look at these people are making a big deal out of him bringing stuff from, to me from that cool-looking bar. And, and I didn't realize it then, and I didn't realize it for quite a long time until one day I was actually thinking about that experience, and it dawned on me that that alcohol had its effect on me before I ever took the first drink because it triggered something in my mind that said it was cool to be that way. They didn't like it, and as long as they didn't like it, I wanted to do it. You could fast forward 15 years because that pretty much set the tone for the way I behaved most the rest of my life. I couldn't stand authority, had issues with that all the time as a kid coming up, high school. I mean, if I would have pulled some of the stuff today at that age that, that I did then, they, I'd be in prison. I guarantee it. they'd just lock me up. There's no way I'd have been, I would have, they'd arrested me and got me out. I'd have never went back to school. They used to ask me to leave. And, and I had a smart-ass answer for that, too. But. So um, I started to, to grow up a little, I guess, uh, and actually as far as had to get out and get a job and make some money. I moved to Florida right after I graduated and uh, took a stab at that down there for a while. And the next significant part in my life you know, I had dabbled in some drinking on and off. Again, it was around the house all the time. My folks never made a big deal out of it. And when we were 10, 11, 12 years old, whatever, hitting this or that somewhere around the holidays, it's just how it was. It wasn't any big deal. And uh, that's about all I really recall or remember. So when I moved down to Florida after high school, um, I had a friend die in a, in a car accident. And it was a drinking fest down there. That's, and then when I got back, I decided I moved back because I didn't, I didn't want to be down there anymore. Went back to Pittsburgh, and I got hooked up in a business in the golf industry, uh, building uh, in construction, uh, golf course construction and management, and mostly on the construction side for the next, I don't know, 6, 8, 10, 12 years, something like that. And um, that was pretty cool because it was probably the only – job that I could think of where it was okay to come in hungover and start drinking and then go out and start running heavy equipment. It was very creative. <laughs> I'm sure if you look in the Caterpillar uh, uh, safety manual, it doesn't say to, you know, carry a six-pack in the cooler behind the bulldozer seat, you know, but some of that probably went on. <laughs> anyway, uh, that job took me on down to Lexington, Kentucky. Now, i got to tell you, coming from the family 
the next major thing. So, so the, the story about the, the, the guy getting killed in, in Florida, that's really when I got back to Pittsburgh and got into this job where my drinking really started to get pretty routine. I was a binge drinker. Uh, I knew all the cops in the hometown where I was from, uh, you know, and, and all that. So I, and, and I bring that up because I never really paid any serious physical price for my drinking. If I got pulled over drunk, it was, what the hell are you doing? Get out of here. You know, and, and there again, it was just a, another thing that perpetuated my behavior. That I could get away with it because I had all the right people on my side. And uh, it was just the environment that I came from. So, uh, I decided that I wanted to stay on this career path for the time being. And I, and I took up with this company and we ended up down in Lexington, Kentucky doing a... Uh, uh, a golf course for the city there, and um, what an environment change. That was like a cultural, incredible difference. And all the while, uh, anybody here have a dysfunctional family? <laughs> so I don't have to go too far into that. They, uh, I, I felt this incredible relief when I left the house, and this was kind of like the move. The first move was like a I, I know better. I, I'm going to go conquer the world while I still know everything. And, and I'm, you know, that lasted all of about 14 months, and my butt was back in the same bedroom where I was, you know, for the previous 19 years. Anyway, uh, I finally, when I moved down to Kentucky, it was a little more solid, and, and I got down there, and I got away from my family, and I started to feel this relief um, uh, of being away, really, truly being away. And the reason I bring that up is there's a, a particular family member that was dabbling into other chemicals other than alcohol who'd started out at a young age, and she had progressed into uh, uh, quite of other uh, cocaine and, and a lot of it. And in the 80s, that was a pretty easy thing to do. And I had a brother in Florida, and uh, she was in the airline business in Pennsylvania, and you can add up the rest. Um, but there was a... Man, it might, might not have been like FedEx, but there was a lot of stuff going on, and it was pretty easy to get around my place. But um, that insanity, for the first time, I got away from this drama of my family unit. And I remember a phone call coming in one night from her, and she was pissing and moaning that they were going to do this intervention, one of those interventions before it was a fancy TV show. And... Um, I remember telling her I had no clue what in hell the program was. I, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't have a problem either or any, you know, hadn't, I, I didn't have any issues. I was having a great time, man, I'll tell you. They literally, that, that, that cultural change was, I, you know, Pittsburgh, in case you don't know, it's a, a steel town, river city. It was work hard and play hard. And that's how I learned to work and drink. Was uh, and that's why I think it really patterned me as a weekend kind of binger. Now the weekend started getting four, you know, sometimes four and five days long. But you know, I never, I can't honestly tell you, I never remember drinking more than probably three, maybe three or four days in a row. Because when I hit it, I hit it pretty hard. And I, you know, the, the the first one was the big day, and then the two or three that came after that was just trying, how the hell am I going to get through this, <laughs> you know, and then uh, get back to work, and so. Uh, definitely a binge drinker and uh but kentucky was so laid back compared to pittsburgh i mean i got a coffee mug somewhere it says pittsburgh is a uh a football town or a drinking town with a football problem and 
and, and it's a fact. It really is. It's, it's like a different environment. But I got to Kentucky, and I remember doing something down there, and these guys looked at me one day. I was on the job, and they said, they literally said, ah, we'll get to that when we get to it. And it was fairly major, and I remember thinking, my God, what a, what a difference. What a, it's like, well, okay, <laughs> you know. So the experience of, of getting out of that environment was a relief in more ways than one. It was, hey, how you doing? Good, good, come on in. And, uh, and so uh, it was really laid back, and um, it allowed me to... It allowed me to just kind of to kind of relax and 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 uh, and get away from all of the, the the hassles of that insanity back there. And I was really having a damn good time. I was drinking, partying, chasing women. Uh, that's the other thing, you know. Lexington is uh, is a land of uh, pretty horses and fast women, and I can tell you, and good moonshine, and I can attest to all three. Um, and, and I was having a great time. So I get this phone call one night from my sister, and she starts moaning about how the family was going to toss her into a rehab or something. And I was just like, man, you got to be kidding me. I was like, I don't want to hear this. I really was sick and tired of it. I was sick and tired of all the drama and the crap. And my response to her was, uh, again, I know he was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself because I didn't, I didn't, you know, I couldn't come up with it. It was before I actually knew what it even was. And I just said, look, if you really want help, you call me back, and, and I will do everything in my power to help you. Otherwise, leave me the F alone, and I hung up on her. And um, I know today that it, I couldn't have done that on my own. I really do believe that. Um, about three days, took about three days, and the phone rang. And then when the phone rang, I thought, holy shit, now what am I going to do? You know? <laughs> I was a liar, a cheat, and a thief, but I, if I did tell somebody something, I usually tried to, to, to keep to my word as best I could. And when it was my sister, I, I pretty much had to own up to it. So I got into the phone book, and uh, I found a treatment center, and, uh, and, and the insurance and everything covered. So she was in. And the interesting thing was, prior to that, just prior to that, um, I'd run out on, in the evenings and go to my favorite watering hole and whatnot around the corner, and uh, I remember driving past this building. It looked a little bit like a, an elementary school. And I remember looking through it. It was one of those buildings with about five foot of brick or so. And then the whole corner was glass. And uh, you could see into the building. And it looked like a cafeteria lit up with these fluorescent lights like right here. And I remember driving by a couple of times. And there was a stop sign right there at, a, at an intersection. And I would look over and I would think, man, they must be having some kind of an office thing, or that's like a lunch break room or whatever, you know. And I'd go about my business. Well, when I got into the phone book, the address for Charter Ridge Hospital was like two numbers off of my apartment complex. I'm what in the hell? <laughs> and the meetings that they were holding at 8 o'clock every night was Alcoholics Anonymous. So the first meetings I went to... Um, Rewind about a month, maybe, maybe six weeks prior to that phone call from my sister. I, I was having too good of a time. The weekends got to be sometimes four days long. And uh, I remember one time my boss had left. I was number two or three on the pole. And uh, he was out of town, and I was left with this bundle of keys every piece of equipment, all the buildings, all of the gates, and everything to get into the job site. 
And uh, I'm not much of a morning person to begin with, but I had to be there to crack of dawn and make sure everything was fueled up and all the equipment was ready to roll. And one night I went out till about 1 o'clock in the morning. And a little light went off in my head and said, man, you know, you got a lot of responsibility and you're drinking until 1 o'clock in the morning and having to be out at the job site at 5 a.m., you know, that's getting a little bit risky, you know. This is starting to get a little bit more than just, you know, drinking and on the weekend, Friday, Saturday night, and recuperating on Sunday. And uh, so on my way home one night, I stopped into O'Charlie's, one of my favorite watering holes. One of those bars where you go in, the, it's a restaurant and bar, and you go in the front doors, and then there's like this set of steps with the brass railings that go up. And for those of you that are listening, not seeing, you know, you're missing the visual. But the... Uh, the railings would go up, and then there was like this big island up there, you know, and it was about four or five steps up, and the bars elevated, and then all the liquor was in an island that the bartender went around, and it was all downlit, and the bottles were just shining and green lights and all this. It's like you open the doors, and for any real alcoholic, it was just like heaven. <laughs> you, know, you know, I swear, everything would stop. And the, ah, yeah, exactly, you know. And I think personally every bar should be built like that. That's just my opinion. And, uh, but anyway, I'd stop in there, and my routine was to hit the corner of the bar, and the bartender would come around, and if he didn't have that second drink in his hand when he came around, I'd start throwing the peanuts and shit at him and tell him how lousy he was as a bartender. Because by God, I wanted my second drink. I wanted it now. And, uh, you know, and I, hell with these other people. <laughs> you know, I got a purpose. I got, I got a job to do here, man. So, but I went in there one day. And, I, and I, I did something that I didn't realize I was doing. Once again, he was doing for me, and, and I had no idea. But I, I, I ordered one drink, and I left. I drank it, and I, I, drank it and I left. And I, I did that, I think it was a Thursday or a Wednesday, and I did it again. Another, the next day, I did the very same thing. I went, I went into that bar, my favorite place, sat in the same seat I usually sat at, and ordered that one drink. Around the clock he went, and by the time he got back, that one was gone, and I was gone. And um, I'm sitting in... Okay, so my time frame got squeezed down. When I'd get home from work, this is where I learned that drinking in the shower was very refreshing. Because now I had, I had to get home, and time was of the essence, so I'd get home, and I'd mix up my 151 and Coke, and I'd hit the shower with a nice tall glass, icy cold 151 and, and Coke, and I'd get into a nice hot shower, and man, there ain't nothing better than that. <laughs> well, there's, there's one thing better than that. <laughs> and we're all looking at it, but before this, there wasn't nothing better than that. <laughs> and... Uh, so I'd down one or two of those. I'd down one in the shower and then hit another one. By all means, I mean, I was on my way to an AA meeting. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? <laughs> she made it. She did the rehab. And uh, because I, I'm a man of my word, <laughs> uh, sometimes, I, uh, I attended my first AA meetings that way. Uh, not for me, and I didn't have a problem because I stopped at the bar and I proved to myself that I could do that. And... Um, it was in one of those first few meetings that I was attending because my, they'd bring them back in off the ward, you know. They'd come up from the back, the lockdown area, and they'd come into the cafeteria, and I caught on to the whole scene. And I heard a few things in those meetings, and um, I thought, you know, it's, this is kind of interesting. And it's not that I had never heard of AA. I had heard of the program, but I just didn't really know anything about what it was. And uh, so that was my first exposure. And I'm sitting in one of those first few meetings, 
and I heard the first thing that I ever heard in Alcoholics Anonymous. There was a guy in that meeting that uh, said, the only time in my life that I ever took a drink, one drink, was to prove to myself that I could. And I mean to tell you, it might as well have been a bullseye as it hit me square. And I, you know, I just thought, holy smokes, you got to be kidding me. And I had just done that. And I think that really sparked the connection because I, you know, uh, at least in my own mind, I felt I was pretty smart and I had some intelligence to know that I could listen and I could still learn, I could hear. And I thought, man, you know, I'd just done that. And that really, I really connected with that. It wasn't enough to stop. It didn't, you know, the rest of, I didn't hear anything else. I didn't hear what else was waiting, you know. So it wasn't enough to put me in park yet. But uh, it wasn't too much longer after that that I, that I did go, um, well, I'll tell you the insanity of, of the way it was for me. Um, we're sitting on a bulldozer in an excavator one day under the tree, and next to the property was a state garage, Kentucky uh, DOT. And there was a big pile of stoplights and don't walk signs or something out there. And the one guy on the dozer next to me said something about, man, he was building a game room, and he thought, well, it'd be cool to have one of those don't walk signs as a, light, you know, hanging in the corner in the game room. I thought, well, whatever. It was a Friday. So about 1.30 or 2 in the morning, that off-the-hand comment that he made turned into a great idea for this drunk. And so I proceeded to drive all the way back across town, drove my truck through the gates of the state garage, fell out, cut the crap out of my leg, heaved a couple of, I think it was two stoplights and a don't walk sign into the back, proceeded to make my way back to the apartment all the way back on the other side of town. I, uh, I didn't make it to the bed that night. I ended up waking up the next morning on the sofa, and it was might as well have been 110 degrees in that apartment his eyes just dry. <laughs> but I remember pants half off coming to, and I looked up and I can I can still see that ceiling to this day. And I remember I prayed the first prayer I think I ever did, the real prayer in my life, and I said, God, I don't want to feel like this anymore. And I knew at that point that this wasn't for me. I was dead. I hadn't lost a job. I hadn't been arrested. I'd, I'd, I'd never even really, I'd, I don't think I ever even crashed a vehicle, not, not by accident. I'd done it on purpose a few times, but I'd, you know, running crap over and stuff. But I'd never, I never really paid any serious price other than hangovers for my drinking and all the abuse that I'd put other people through. But I, I woke up that morning and I came to, and I think that's that moment of clarity that we all have, that moment, you know that every alcoholic comes to in their life where it's at, we stood at the crossroads, you know. And I, I went to, uh, that was a Friday night. I stayed sober that weekend on my own. I, I went to the Wednesday night meeting at Charter Ridge Hospital, and I was sitting in that meeting, and I heard the second thing I ever heard in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's um, my favorite tradition today still is, the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And I came here spiritually and emotionally bankrupt, absolutely dead inside. I was really a shell of a man. I, I, I had a hell of a front going. You know, I used violence and everything else around me and 
women and you name it to, to put up a good front, but it just didn't work anymore. The alcohol quit working. I couldn't stand who I was. I absolutely hated. I was a miserable person. I just, God, I couldn't hate. I, I just hated myself. And, and I hated how I treated people, especially those closest to me. And, uh, you know, I was great at conning people out of things. I was a good liar, a cheat, and a thief. And in every way, shape, or form, that's what I did in just about every relationship, you know. Well, I didn't want to drag on through all this stuff from the past. I don't know. I guess this is God's gig, not mine. But anyway, um, so from that point forward, you know, I got a sponsor. Freddie, the guy that said he read the traditions from the podium, I got up there that night. We used poker chips, and I, I picked up my white chip. It was a, that 24-hour desire chip. And um, my life began to change. Now, I'll share with you, in, in sobriety, I, I, they told me, they told me to do this. They said, get the big book and read it. Get a sponsor and call them. Go to meetings. And above and beyond all else, don't take the first drink or drug. And I thought, man, that's pretty simple. There wasn't no genuflection stuff. There wasn't no it's showing up every Sunday morning or Saturday night. There wasn't any this, that. They didn't lay out, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, stop using people, quit being an asshole. And it, none of that. Had they laid all that stuff out, I probably would have ran for the door like a jackrabbit. I'd have been out of here. I would have been like, yeah, that sounds a lot like some place I've been before and I don't have much interest. But Alcoholics Anonymous was different that, hell, I didn't even have to do those four things if I didn't want to. You know, it was really on me. Do you want what we have or don't you? That's what they said. The most important thing happened in those early days was I felt God. I, I never had any understanding. His, my concept of him that I put on a shelf when I turned 16 or 17 was he was out there and I was out here and that was the end of it. I had no need for God. What do I need God for? I was doing everything for myself anyway, you know. So uh, as a result, my early days of sobriety, I continued to lie, cheat, and steal. I kept going to bars. I didn't go there without a purpose. It doesn't say that in the book. And I would call my sponsor on a Friday night. He'd ask, what are you doing? Going to such and such bar. What for? To go watch. I was in a band for a while and played guitar. And, I, and so I'd go in there to watch the band. And uh, I'd drink soda water and I'd leave. Oh, and I'd also tell him, I'd, excuse me, ladies and anyone, don't take offense. But, you know, he'd ask me. I'd say, he'd say, what are you doing? I'm going to watch the band and get laid. <laughs> It was all I knew, guys. I mean, it was my life. I didn't, you know. Uh, and as, but I kept going to meetings. And I started reading the big book. And I started going through the steps. And something interesting happened as, as a result. Going to those bars, chasing them women, watching them bands or doing whatever, mixing it up with that crowd became less and less important. And feeling and learning who God was and excuse me staying sober became more important so I found myself going to more meetings than I did bars and eventually I really didn't have any business in those places and um, the night I picked up that white chip was February the 3rd 1988 and and I believe that that was the night that 
the miracle took place for me because the idea of drinking, the thought of drinking, the escape that I used to find in alcohol vanished. And to this night, to this day, it it has not returned. And I think that in itself is a miracle. I think that anybody that's really trapped in any addiction that, that has something like that disappear without really any explanation, physical explanation, I think you could count that as a miracle. And I, I honestly, I, I have, I, and the only reason I bring that date up is just because it was a fact. I don't put much stock in sobriety dates because to be completely honest with you, in the 20 some odd years that it's been, uh, I can honestly tell you that what, what's the definition of sobriety, Rick? Uh, it's uh, being at peace with you, me, and God is what I've heard, one of the definitions of sobriety. And in that time, I can tell you I might have a few days. I mean, in reality, that's if, if you really cut it dry and said, uh, how long have I been at peace with you, me, and God? <laughs> it ain't been much. But the beauty, beautiful thing is, is I found that this is progress, not perfection. I'm willing to show up as long as I remain teachable, as long as I remain willing and I'm open-minded to this, I can grow. And, and I have grown. I've grown a, a lot in the program. And then I grew even out of the program. I, I, I stopped going to meetings for a while. I moved to another state. And by they didn't do it the way we did it in Kentucky. So I just didn't really like it. And uh, so I drifted away from the program for a while, you know. And I found interest in other things. I, I, I maintained a contact with the God that I understood. And, uh, you know, I, I got to tell you, and I... At, the, at whatever risk it might be. I don't think the book keeps me sober. I know it isn't these meetings. I, I, I know it's not my sponsor. I mean, all these things are helpful, and I, I don't even think it's, it's necessarily helping another alcoholic. Uh, to me, there's one thing that keeps me sober, and that's God. Because I can tell you there was a good stretch of time where I didn't do any of that stuff. Uh, you know, I got pretty, pretty well crazy. I did some pretty ugly things. Did I live in, was it sober? Was it sober act, action? No, it wasn't. You know, did I pick up that first drink or drug? No, I did not. It never occurred to me to do that. You know, uh, what that taught me and how I see that today is that I have to be real careful what I define as my disease. You know, the book talks about that as being a, it centers in my mind. It really didn't have much to do with what came out of that bottle. Sometimes I acted certain ways when I drank and pretty unpredictable stuff could happen, uh, but that really isn't the core of my problem. Uh, my problem and the reason I'm back here today is because my thinking is all messed up, you know, and, my, and more than that, when I act that way, I create a separation between me and the God that I understand today, and as long as I continue to do that, it's going to keep me going in the wrong direction, and I'm not going to be getting better. Um, in the past couple of years, you know, um, I guess I got reconnected uh, about seven years or so ago, maybe a little more than that, and um, it's been an incredible journey, both all the way through it. I mean, you know, I think everything that happens in, in, in my life, everything that's happened has been an opportunity. I can handle it two ways. This is kind of where I'm at today and where I've been at in the last couple of years in in this path and this growth is that um, I can take something that happens to me an experience and I can treat it 
with an alcoholic attitude or I can treat it with a recovery attitude. Um, if, I'm, if I have anything to do with running the show, with running my life, is usually when I respond with, that guy's a jerk. He, somebody, you know, I just happened yesterday in driving some, I, don't, don't you just love it when the traffic's backed up and the guy hits the HOV lane and drives about 300 cars in front of you and then you see him up there at the light, cuts right in the hell in front of everyone. Man, my instant, my reaction was, I thought, how can I get through this traffic fast enough to catch that guy? And I mean, I literally remembered the car and was thinking, you know, but man, that's just not my job today. <laughs> you know, and thank God within 10 seconds or so, the thought came to me, it is not your job, Joe. Sit down and shut up. <laughs> and then inevitably about another 10 seconds goes by and I thought, well, I really ought to pray for that guy because he's just driving like an idiot and he really needs help, you know. And, and so because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the God that I have working in my life today, that's where I end up. And uh, instead of taking days or weeks or months to have something happen in my life and then get to that point, I can honestly say now that it's, it's becoming more second nature. It happens, I think the book talks about it, that these things happen automatically. Wow. You know, um, I, I wish I could tell you that every problem that crops up in my life, my theory is, is that if I, if I look at everything that happens as an opportunity to grow, that'd be euphoria, and I'd love to say that I walk around like a monk, and I can do that with everything that happens, and, you know, I've, I've gotten more out of this program and God and life than anybody, you know, than whatever, but, you know, it just doesn't work that way, but if I can even do it a part of the time, if, if I can see something happen or, you know, I recently, and I'll touch on this because it really has, it really catapulted me into something in the recent, I guess it's been maybe, what, a year? Somewhere around a year or something like that. I, I, recent, I went through a divorce. I'll, I'll warn you, though. I'll give you a warning. If you're not good at taking your fourth step, marry somebody in the program. <laughs> You'll get your fourth step on a regular basis. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, there's times when it probably needed to be shown, but, you know, I, I try to stay out of other people's business when it comes to that. You are where you are, and I am where I am, and that's good enough for me. Um, but I, I, I was, I'll tell you what happened was, I was so pissed at God that I had, if I could have grabbed him by his tight little collar and decked him, I'd have done it. I know I couldn't have helped my human self from not doing it. I was that pissed. For getting me into this, my, my, my understanding has changed in the last few years. I, I kind of have a different conception of God, and, and I see it as growth. It's all good. But, but as, as it says in the book in We Agnostics, I like that it says we agnostics, and it doesn't say we used to be, that we were, and that it's you or I. It's we all. And I can clearly see that because of what I just said. I was ready to beat them, you know. And uh, I was placed in a position where I absolutely had to practice acceptance and, to a certain degree, blind faith. And I sure didn't like going through it. I hung on to the principles of the program. Uh, I, I called my sponsor. I met with my sponsor. I talked to other people, uh, a whole lot of people I, I was calling and and, uh, and, and meeting with and, and just dealing with this stuff, you know. And uh, 
man, so many different emotions came up and through that. And that's where the, uh, when, I, when I really let go, and, and, and to be honest, it, it wasn't by my choice. It, it, it really wasn't. Every, almost everything that I've ever let go of in this, in this world has had claw marks on it, you know. Uh, it's just, I, it's got to be ripped away from me because unless I, it was my idea, it's not a good idea. And, um, you know, but God brought me through that. He really did, honestly. And, uh, you know, I remember having a hell of a screaming match with him one night. I was leaving the airport, and I was just, God, I was so pissed. And uh, something interesting happened. It, it, it was like I really let loose on him verbally, and I'd never done that. But the instant that I did, I felt this huge relief, almost like picking up that 24-hour chip. Something changed that instant. And I knew that it was going to be okay. And um, so that, that's really been what I've tried to hold on to. And that's where I sort of realized that, look, man, you know, everything that happens in my life can be either treated as a, an opportunity to grow or I can treat it as a, as a, as a, uh, a negative experience and I can let it bring me down, you know. So I share that with, with the hope that, Maybe our perspective can change a little. Um, maybe through the program, my perspective has changed that, you know, things are what they are. And, and uh, you know, I've heard it over and over. And I don't know how many times all the little acronyms, you're right where you're supposed to be, you know, uh, just keep showing up, uh, you know, let go, let God, all that stuff. Well, it's all words until I actually really did it in my heart. And, and I really took a big step in growth when that happened. And it wasn't by my choice. You know, had I had I had it my way, I'd probably still be in that mess. And looking back now, that's exactly what it was. It was on the hill. You know, God, God bless her. She, you know, we both did the best we could given the tools we had, and and it just wasn't meant to be. And uh, we weren't ready. You know, I still I still pray for the pastor that put us together that that actually went through with the ceremony. I look back now and I think, man, that guy needs to be in here. <laughs> You know, uh, God hasn't afforded me the opportunity to talk to him because I'm not ready yet to be able to probably approach it in a civil manner. <laughs> so we'll just let that ride until the time's right, and maybe someday that'll come up and uh, we'll have a talk. But I try and get up in the mornings, and uh, I, I really do my best to, to, when I can remember, you know, and that's another thing about this. The only step I was told I had to do 100% correct was step one. And that morning I woke up on that sofa and I didn't want to be on this earth anymore, really. And I didn't have anything inside of me that was worth anything. It was when I achieved step one, you know. And uh, I had to have some people explain to me the, the second part of that because I had a little trouble about that, you know. But it didn't take too long when, you know, it didn't take more than about a minute or two with a sponsor that was like, well, didn't you just say you wanted to kill that son bitch at work yesterday? I was like, hell yeah, didn't you hear what he did to me? And he said, well, it doesn't sound like you have much control over anything. And I thought, well, he's right about that. He says, your life's unmanageable, boy. Sit down and shut up. And I couldn't argue with it, you know. And uh, it's been a great journey. It really has um, all the good, all the right and wrong things I've chosen to do, you know. It, it is all on me. The, the solution's in that book. It's in that first 164 pages. There are clear-cut directions about six years, five years ago. I had another good, hard look at that, thanks to my sponsor. And I went begrudgingly, of course, 
you know, and I'm here tonight begrudgingly to a degree, you know, uh, I don't necessarily like this, but I can remember, pretty much remember waking up from that last radical experience with alcohol, and I'd prefer to do this than that. <laughs> Sometimes that's the way it's been in sobriety for me. Uh, it's that 51-49, you know, 51% of me wanted to be here and 49 wanted to be in the bar chasing women, you know, and fortunately the, the percentages have never gone further than that. Uh, a really good day is probably 80-20, 90-10, you know. Um, I really am grateful. I'll tell you, I'll close with this. The one thing that does scare me a little bit about AA is, the, is what I see going on today. Uh, this is an honest opportunity. This is an honest, possible one shot at living. I, I got to tell you, I think that if I ever go back out and pick up the first drink, you will not ever see me again. My ego won't let it happen. I'll drink myself straight into the hole if I don't eat a bullet on the way. Uh, I've heard too many stories about going back out, and, and it scares me to see people that do. I just don't think people get, you know, we come from an age in Alcoholics Anonymous where recovery and treatment centers and all that, it's not like it used to be, you know. And, and, uh, if I could express it, we just don't have to go down that far anymore. You know, I didn't. No one else has to do that. Um, we don't have to, to lose everything, you know. Um, and so just stay. You know, I treat this today on a good, good day. I treat it like this is the absolute last chance I have to hang on to life and to be able to live. And I ain't talking about breathing. I'm talking living inside I've been filled with a gift that couldn't come from anything other than a God, a power greater than me. And I mean, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve any of this. You know, but I'm damn sure grateful I got it and had the opportunity. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you. Thank you.